And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on April 22nd, 2022. As the founder, principal, and guiding influencer of Viridian Landscape Studio, Tavis Dockwiller leads a team that works every day to make sure they leave more than they take and have fun while they're doing it. Her belief in the essential and healing power of landscapes drives all the firm's design projects and ecological master plans. A natural storyteller and gifted communicator, Tavis knows how to build consensus between diverse stakeholders and counsels clients on balancing long-term ecological resilience with memorable placemaking. Her work and ideas have helped reshape cities, transform college campuses, and improve lives for communities all over the country. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Tavis. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. How did you find your way uh, to landscape architecture? Or maybe we rephrase it, did landscape architecture find you? Well, it all goes back to my mommy. It often does. That's true. When I was going to go off to college, I'm the third kid. My mother had been around the block on this. And she was really good at hurting the cats and subtly suggesting things we ought to do. And she uh, knew about landscape architecture, which a lot of people don't. A lot of people come to it as a second career, right? But she she said to me, you know, I really think you should look into this uh, because it really will combine your love of the arts, your love of outdoors, and your environmentalism. And so that sounded pretty pretty good. And then she threw five college catalogs at me and said, you know, choose from one of these because those, you know, were not days that you went and did lots of college visits. And so I, I had a few options, but I, um, I chose Penn State partially because it was uh, closer than some of the other options and it seemed like a better drive. And I just really, I think was lucky in that choice because they have such a, a strong program, a program that not only makes you think about art, but really thinks about the technical aspects of being a landscape architect. And you grew up, as I recall, in northern New Jersey. I did. And was this like a semi-rural or were you in the New York City exurbs? And did nature play a part in your youth as well? Yeah, nature definitely played a part in my youth. So I grew up in a little town called Hillsdale, which it had been actually apple and peach orchards. And it really still was when I was a kid with like little developments. I grew up on a on a little street built, uh, all the houses were built by a Norwegian builder who actually lived next door to us. And we overlooked a golf course and we had a big wood lot 
that we also overlooked. And the owner of that woodlot was always really kind about letting us play there. And in the in the winters in particular, in the summers, you'd get chased by the groundskeeper if you if you went out onto the course. <laughs> but not that ever happened. But I did like to sneak down into the swamp and go like skunk cabbage hopping. That's true. But in the winters, they just really turned a blind eye. So I got to skate on the pond, which doesn't freeze anymore. And I got to sled on the hills. I got to follow Mr. Gunderson, our neighbor around, who taught me how to cross-country ski, and bike riding, all, all of that. I loved, I loved being out in the woods. I suspected you had an idyllic uh, childhood. <laughs> I, I've always suspected that all along, and it's just been confirmed. Your website is great. I spent a little time on it as we prepped for the show. And, uh, you know, just some phrases jumped out at me. And, you know, one of which is that you heal ecosystems. And then you have a, a little bit of text in there. When we restore native landscapes, native landscapes restore us. That is, uh, that almost gets me emotional. Maybe I still will. The show's in the early hour, early part of the hour. Uh, but how did you get to this point? And, and I, I don't even intend to uh, exaggerate here. How did you get to such an enlightened approach to landscape architecture? You know, I think I was, I was always interested in the environmental aspects, right? And I am a kid of the 70s, and I'm the youngest kid by a lot. So I had an older brother and sister who were really kids of the 70s, teens of the 70s. And, and of course, there was a huge environmental movement then. So... I always had that in the back of my mind. I think it's how my, my parents were. There was a lot of thought to um, service and leaving things better than you found them. And then, you know, frankly, I was lucky, right? I, I came out of college and I, I went actually to a civil engineering firm, but I worked for a very good landscape architect there named Wayne Johnson, who's since passed away. And he really fostered me. And then uh, through life circumstances, I ended up, going up to a multidisciplinary firm called uh, QPK. Now they're called Quinlivan, Perrick and Krauss in upstate New York. And I, I got to work with, um, all, you know, sort of all the trades of my industry, uh, landscape architects, architects, interior designers, structural engineers, and soils engineers. And so I, I got a really good foundation for my, my craft there. And then I came down, I wanted to work for Andrew Pogon because everybody wants to work for Andrew Pogon. And I, I was really lucky there. And I, ha I have to say that that was very pivotal for me because instead of being kind of the lone environmental voice, right, I sort of joined the environmental army. And then, you know, I, I, I left Andrew Pogon with one of their founding partners, Rolf Sauer. And Rolf and I really wanted to work on a, at a smaller firm at that point and be very hands-on and we're very committed to environmentalism. And it's it's something like you learn through time, yeah. right? And I think how we got, we got really lucky in our commissions. We've been lucky through all the years to have people who had that shared value. And they've really taught us, starting with the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, who wanted to figure out how to leave their, I think 250-acre Monroe, Michigan, they, that order is all going to be dead by the year 2025. So they want to figure out their legacy. So I think it's it was a passion of the heart, but then we've been lucky with the commissions to work with people who can really help us to understand next steps. 
Can you talk a little bit more about that project in Michigan? Sure. Gosh, I'm trying to think how how we got. Well, that commission came through Susan Maxman Architects. I was really lucky to work with, with Susan and Rolf together. You know, Susan was the first head of the American Institute of, Lens, of, of Architects. Right. And they were really committed environmentally. Like, you know, we were all sort of making these commitments. LEED was really new. In fact, it started before LEED. And they were looking for landscape architects, and they felt like Rolf, Rolf and I could do it. And, of course, people had known Rolf. He had a really good reputation. And, yeah, that's how it started. Gee, I think it was back in 2003 is when the project was completed. And it really was the idea that they they had this sort of, you know, formal campus, and they were trying to figure out how to leave a sustainable legacy. A lot of these women had come to that order at maybe 18, mm-hmm. and they talked a lot about what they did that was really sustainable then. You know, they had, they grew food, they had livestock, and they felt like through the years they had really turned away from that sustainability. And they thought if we could leave one legacy, it would be an environmental legacy, which is interesting because the Catholic Church is not really known for its great environmentalism. So it was really interesting to work with a group of women who'd been thinking a long time about this. And and you can look up the project. We did interesting things like figure out how to turn lawns into starter oak savannas. And mm. that's fraught with um, tales of, of greatness and tales of horror. So <laughs> it's not so easy, right, to put things back. And, and we got a lot yeah. of invasive weeds. And as a, for instance, these ladies had... They had done a lot of teaching work in South America. So we wanted to control invasives with like an overspray of, uh, of Roundup. And they said, there's not a chance we'll do that because we spent our entire careers working against the chemical companies because they overspray villages. So it's really an interesting way to get, you know, you're always getting educated by each other. Yeah. That's really yeah. interesting. I used to work for, well, convent and nuns. And their sustainability process was very much like you're talking about. They were from uh, Germany and they did their vegetable planting and had a little greenhouse and did everything. They had a nursing home and that was the part that I was working at. They were very conscious about the environment. And uh, as they slowly started to die off, their legacy kind of just, I don't know whether it's still still there, but I saw it disappearing. And I think that that's very fortuitous that you had the opportunity to work for an organization like that and to actually help them carry their dream into the future. That's much to be commended. Well, it's 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 it, well, it's an honor. It's an honor to be able to do it. And and you know, as I said, we all learned from one another. We were left in charge of hiring the civil engineer for the project. And at the beginning of the project, you know, they were really concerned with making sure the stormwater got off site. And by the end of the project, they were really thinking about how to keep stormwater on the site, and they were seeing results. We did some wet depressions, and it took the pressure off the storm system, so it wasn't blowing manholes down in Monroe, Michigan. So it was like we converted each other in, in lots of ways. It was It's really fascinating, and I, I still follow them, and, and it's interesting to me those oak savannas are coming along. We worked with a guy named Neil Dyball, who has Prairie Nursery out west. He was really instrumental 
in helping them and continued to help them to figure out how to manage these oak savannas, which, by the way, the neighbors, you know, were going to hate at first and did hate. And the nuns went door to door. They went door to door and talked about why this change was important, because we're going to go from this really clipped landscape into something much more wild. And they talked about the health of the river, the Raisin River. And so, so, you know, they, they wanted to really have their site serve as an advocacy site through time. So, you know, if you can have the conversation, it's kind of bigger than all of us individually, right? Yes. That's amazing. That's really amazing. So what was your time period with that project in Monroe, Michigan? When were you there? Roughly. I want to say we worked with them from 99 to 2003. I think, okay. I think that's right. 99. That, and that project won a code award, a committee on the environment top 10 award for the AIA. So that was, that was pretty special, but it, it was a long time. And, and, you know, it's hard as a professional sometimes to keep in touch. Right. But they, right. they don't really need us. <laughs> They're, they're on their journey of environmentalism and to keep in touch is a, a, a luxury in a way, right? I'm sorry, you're, you're keeping in touch with who now? With the with, client, with the client. With the client, you know, right. We try right, to keep right. in touch. How, do the, how does that Savannah look 20 years later? It looks really good. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I guess I didn't say that very clearly before. I sort of sneak around on the internet now and I look <laughs> for people taking photos of it. And yes. it's, it's, Amazing. I haven't, I haven't looked in about a year and we, we actually, we had a program in the office a couple of years ago to do post-occupancy review with longtime clients. And I've, I've had trouble connecting with them, but, but that's my methodology. So you can sneak out and, and see some pictures of what it, what it looks like today. And, and, you know, is it a perfect oak savanna? No, but they had a remnant oak savanna at the back of the property. I, I should, I should call back Hal. I'll call back and try to get some more data. On how they're monitoring. Well, I mean, it's a great endeavor, and you used an interesting phrase that it's not so easy to put things back. And an oak savanna would be deceptively simple and really complex to actually install. I, I was just reading Daryl Morrison's book, who is a naturalist, and he's from Wisconsin. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of his name, but he's done some really big projects. And the idea of reverting back to too wild or to something that what we thought was here or we have remnants, like you said, was here. I think it's really critical for not only the health of a community, but a health of, of a, an ecosystem and a plant group like the oaks, for example. You know, creating that larger context of diversity of genetics. Where is that going and how, how does that get saved? And, you know, very specific, very specific site and the idea of the genetics behind it. And you being able to do something like that is, is remarkable, number one. But number two, to have a client who has the vision to do something like that. And having more clients like that is, I think, probably every designer and landscape architect's dream to have a client like that. If you're, if that's your, if that's your forte. Yeah, I think that that, I think that that's true. And I, and I also will say as much as we all are sad sometimes, right? That change doesn't happen fast enough. 
I think looking over the last 20, 30 years, it's astonishing the conversations we can have today versus what we could have when we started this. You know, with the nuns, we had people who were really open-minded and really interested in this conversation. But now we get unexpected people who are championing, even down to we've long courted universities to make big changes, right? And I got told by one of our, our clients the other day, it was really, it was really made me happy. <laughs> we were in a meeting with their facilities people because we always talk with facilities people because we have to, you know, they're the care keepers, right? And they're the people who, who make sure things survive in a landscape. And one of the guys said, well, you know, we have a big campus here like you don't have to give me all the biodiversity like right here in this spot he said because I've got a whole campus of biodiversity and I was able to say well tell me tell me about that how do you want this to look because they're they're burdened with caring for it and if they have 8,000 plants they sometimes can't they can't care for it and we've we've learned a lot about that through the years do you do landscape management plans along with your designs we do we are pushing that more and more and more. I could go on forever about landscape management. It's an easier conversation with some people than with others, but it's always a conversation. And it's sometimes, particularly if you're working on a really large project with a large building, there's so much at stake in that building that people have have trouble thinking about the long-term impact of the landscape. So we're constantly exploring we always educate throughout our projects and always listen to be educated, but we still find that sometimes at the end of a project, we're kind of getting called in for emergency situations. You know, more to come on that, but we really are more and more pushing as a service landscape management plans because it's even interesting. It's like people don't value that if they don't for it in a particular way. Well, and you know, in Europe, you can't do a landscape without a landscape management plan. When I studied there, that was like, you just, you can't because that's what tells you how much it's going to cost you to maintain it. That's and right. if people don't have a landscape management plan, because this is what I, I teach at, at the university, I always say, if you don't have the plan, how are they going to know what the intent of the designer is, number one? And number two, how do you know what it's going to cost to maintain it? You don't. Agreed. Yeah, that's that's a big problem. Agreed. And 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 a lot of times with institutional landscapes, you're not dealing with a workforce that's educated. You know, maybe maybe there's an arborist who comes in and helps them, but more often than not there isn't, right? And you're often dealing with people who they're the chief reason they were hired is they have a driver's license, right? So they can drive the trucks around campus. And it isn't though that that workforce is unwilling to learn. It's that they've not been positioned for success. So that's when we're working, particularly with universities, that's an area that we we talk a lot about. So is it really that hard to manage a landscape? I mean, isn't it just grass and then uh, order a couple hundred yards of shredded bark and cover everything? Oh, wow. <laughs> you're, you're such a, you're such a leader. <laughs> Boy, he's sorry. I do get a little dark. He gets, dark he gets really uh, jabby. Gets the jabber <laughs> out. And <laughs> so, yeah, I think we were just touching on it a little bit, though. I, I I remember, and you know, you lose track of the time frame, but the sustainable landscape became a thing, and only 
every day I learn a little bit about it. And either you or, or Eva just mentioned, you know, the uh, reversion, getting back to nature. And again, again another little bit of a, a wise-ass comment, but either we buy into reverting to landscapes that don't need fossil fuels and can be low maintenance, or nature's going to do it itself once humanity is gone. Agreed. No, agreed. That's right. No pollinators, no life. And so nature has a way that it will sort itself out with, with or without us. And, you know, again, maybe 20 years ago, the movement was really to make everything look and feel very naturalistic. And I think it's been a long conversation and we call it degrees of wildness. You really have to work with people. You know, not everybody is comfortable with, uh, as a client of ours said, grass up to your ass. <laughs> and so you have to really think about that. If you want people to embrace this environmentalism, they have to understand it. They have to be able to maintain it. And it, it's, I mean, I sometimes joke, and, and I'm sure scientists would bat me down for this, but, you know, the butterflies don't really care if you plant the the things in a row, as long as you're planting the right things. And, you know, if you want to get real extremist, that isn't true. But, but I think there are ways to, and, and that's why we say at Viridian, we heal ecological systems while making beautiful places for people. We've talked a long time about that. A lot of people have said to me, well, why don't you just say, because you make beautiful places. I said, well, because it doesn't matter. People have to be involved in this and they have to feel like those places that we make, they can care for and love and have ownership of. And you both know there's a lot of landscape that we have to care for now that 300 years ago we didn't have to care for, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of landscape that we have to manicure to death. <laughs> well, and that is what I object That's what to. I object to, too. I mean, I, there's places for it. There's places for it, but... Right. But I think we've come to the point where everything is like, if you go out into the suburbs, you see, you know, acres and acres and acres of lawn that are mowed every week. And you just look at it, you go, for what? Why? Well, and you're touching on something really interesting. We um, have done work with Liberty Property Trust, right? And if you follow their trajectory over the last 20 years, right, there was a way their places look and there's a way they have their places look now. Hmm. And part of that, is because they really figured out along the way that actually when they started to install, you know, they would have a development and it would be dirt, right? And you'd be like, oh, you can you can build your great new building here. Well, they figured out that if they actually put in the stormwater system and the trees, then people came and they'd be like, oh, this is a nice place. And then they started to figure out that people could accept wilder landscapes. It was like they their client base had to come to a certain level of education to start to demand that. And I think, although we still have lots of manicured and lots of people who don't get it, we, we have had a little bit of a change. And that's helpful to me when our big developers are seeing the value, right? And it isn't that they didn't know the value, a lot of them. They did know the value, but they just couldn't, no one wanted a meadow. Right. And with, with the company you just mentioned, are you talking about the Philadelphia Navy Yard or? That's, yeah, that's that's one of their. Yeah. So shout out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you're doing these plantings, what's your thought 
process when you're selecting plants and trees? And how do you approach a design when you're on a site? What are you looking at? Are you looking at around at the the larger context? Are you looking at, you know, because I think, you know, I know some designers where I see they didn't look at the surrounding context at all and they just plop these things in. And I'm thinking to myself, did they really think about this? <laughs> and and then there's people like yourself where you're looking at the larger context, but you're also looking at a lot of other things besides that. We're context-based. We, we're geology-based. We're hydrology-based. I mean, we look in this region, one of my great resources is the Philadelphia geohistory. I mean, if you want to know what that site was in 1700 and you can call up a map and then, I mean, it's really, really funny. We walk sites sometimes and we're like, oh, there must be a buried stream over there. Oh, there must be that. And then in this region, it's very easy for us to pull those maps. And people are always sort of shocked, right? But just because you bury it, it doesn't mean it goes away. And so you you have to think about what the client wants, what they can care for, how you want to fit into the ecology. And we we always think about that. It doesn't matter if a client asks for it or not. We work really closely with our civil engineers. We, we've worked a long time with Meliora, who's a particularly sensitive civil engineer, but we have, we have other favorites out there. And we have a really robust conversation about stormwater, because if you, you looked at our website, you know, we look at soils, water, and vegetation, and that's what we're trying to heal, those three things together. And we do it in, in all, all different ways. And, um, Sometimes it's more obvious than other times, right? That's exciting. I haven't heard of the Philadelphia geo history before, so I'm excited. I learned something new. You're gonna once you open that up, you're not gonna come out for hours. I know about the U.S. Sur- ge- geological survey because I'd taken geology classes, but that I didn't have, didn't hear about that. We have one local. That's neat. So you're covering all your bases when you meet with that new client. Clients are becoming more enlightened even with that first phone call you can tell maybe they've already got one foot in the door and it's not a hard sell for the most part and that's partially i think if people look at our website and they want to talk to us they're interested (laughs) right and we work with a fair number of agencies too and then we have to feel like appetite. And sometimes an agency really wants to make a change, but it's very hard for them within the context of their structure. So it's it's these incremental baby steps, right? And I, I think mm-hmm. too, we worked for the National Park Service for down in Sandstone, West Virginia, helping them design it's crazy, a rest stop that was also going to act as the gateway to the new river gorge. So it's like every port in a storm, right? You try to, you try to educate. And we figured out ways for people to park in the RV parking lot, but walk through a real landscape so that rangers could meet them and talk to them about the watershed issues of West Virginia. But it's sort of funny that you you were doing it at a rest stop. I mean, it actually works out really well. because it's, it's all interconnected. So with West Virginia, did you pick up the vernacular of the immediate area? Were you pulling the rest stop? Are you feeling like you're in a naturalized area already? Sure, we were. Absolutely. We used sandstone, you know, all local, all indigenous materials. And we worked with, I mean, here's a learning moment, right? 
you know, you go along and you think you know a lot. And we had looked really carefully at the the meadow that we were going to bring back to this site and the groves of trees to help it fit into the mountainside it was carved out of. But you couldn't get any of the plants. So it was the first time that the Park Service, at least the East Coast of the Park Service, had contract grown. And so we convinced them that they ought to contract grow to, to seed the site again. And we worked with North Creek Nurseries, actually, because there weren't large-scale operations. And that was an interesting process of how one branch of government came to monitor the contract growing to help the Park Service. But we made a mistake. We had a goldenrod that we thought was the right goldenrod to use. And we planted the site. And lo and behold, a guy named Peter Hughes, who has a growing operation down there, who we didn't know about, kind of, you know, emerged. And was really upset. And we always try to look for local experts, right? But you can't always get them. You don't find them. And this goldenrod, I mean, he came out one day and ripped it all up because we were about to really screw up. They had a little subspecies particular to their region. And if our stupid goldenrod had gotten out there, we would have mucked up that subspecies. And that was, you know, you, you, you feel like a dope, but you're just so glad. I'm always so glad for Peter Hughes. And it just cements more in your mind, like, I got to find the local experts for this stuff because it's so sensitive, right? Wow. That's really fascinating. It is. And he came back and did some replanting. We had a nice planting plan, but he came back and he did a real local and the name is escaping me. It's like a table rock uh, uh, ecosystem. So he, he, embellished what we did. And to me, that's the most beautiful thing that can happen. We we kind of put a broad gesture in and now they have someone and they can really embellish that and educate to it. Like, that's the kind of thing that makes me cry. There's some butterfly so happy out there. Huh, the right solidago. You weren't able to use composting toilets at the rest stop, were you? You know, I have to remember what Susan and her team did there. We definitely were doing recycled water Mm. there and rainwater capture. That was really early days. We did, you know, Hal, I have to go back and, but, but that was a conversation and that's always with our favorite architects. Those are the conversations that we have. How much water can we capture? How much is going to be used to flush the toilets? You know, where does it go after that? So we're really looking at that total, that total building impact. It's fun. Have you ever had a project, Tavis, the anonymous corporate office park on the far fringes of a big city that calls you and said, we are tired of our heavily manicured landscapes in our corporate park. We want to change things over. We want to use the right kinds of equipment. Have you ever gotten to do a wholesale overhaul in such a fashion? Take away the turf and come back in. We had a call recently about that. I don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. <laughs> but we had a call from a um, bigger than a corporate client, which I, I can't say who it was. Okay. Uh, who was interested? Secret sauce. Secret sauce. But I don't know that that's going to go anywhere. It doesn't yeah. happen. Yes, it, it does. It does happen. 
We had some early clients who were interested in that. Uh, Some of those, again, I won't say who it was, uh, are a little disappointment when you look back because the message was really there for the duration of our work and years after. And then obviously somebody new came on because oops, the woodlot is gone. So Mm. it it is, and, and that really goes to management plans and key principles and trying to leave people with the handbook that's the guiding principles, right? Yeah. Because you have a change. It's the intent of the designer with the thought of the company that you're working for. Right. And it's the values, right? It's the values. Are these values going to be passed on to whoever is next? You know, sometimes people just want to make a mark and maybe they're not educated or that wasn't their value. And that's, that's hard. Yeah, because you can't replace a woodland. It's not, I mean, it takes time to create a woodland. And somebody come in, and that's a, like almost like a power trip. Sure, or they just wanted people to be able to park closer, or people had, uh, you know, security, security people on sites um, have a lot of power. I've had security people tell me, I want a clear shot from the front door of this that's building. exactly right. You know, and they want a clear shot like six miles away to the end of the site. And and you sort of say, well, what's coming for you? And you, you can't you can't be too flippant, though, with this. Right. Uh, I mean, but but it's it's people's hopes and fears. And so so how I, I do think I do think people are more enlightened. I think that there's more pressure on corporations, even if they're only going to do it to look better. Who cares? As long as it's yeah. greenwashing, that, that gets me. But When you were talking about security, the, the rule in the communities around here is that the police want to be able to drive in their car to see everybody's front door. You can't have anything between the road and the front door. And if you travel in, in, our, in our communities around here in southeastern PA, you'll notice that everything is either lawnmower height or just the right height so that a policeman can see from his car to your front door for security reasons. Again, some of that makes sense. You know, I live in a big city. I live in Philadelphia. There are tons of of real good reasons to have security, right? But when it comes at the expense of our long-term security on the planet, you do have to question it a little bit. And I, I got in trouble with a fireman once because I said, you know, maybe we ought to rethink fire equipment and try to make it smaller instead of designing all our infrastructure bigger and bigger. And I don't recommend saying that to a chief of fire at any point in your career. It's it's interesting because European uh, sized vehicles are much smaller than ours. How come we can't have the same size as they do? Well, I mentioned that he did not take kindly to it. And it was a real, it was a real cultural difference. And bigger the better. We are in a city of Well, it's always the 14-foot clearance for the fire trucks on the streets. That's Street trees always have to have 14-foot clearance for the fire trucks. Right. 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 So, so, I mean, I think, you know, asking some of those big questions is, is really important. It's just, you know, also trying not to get drummed out of your meeting is good, too. Because if you can't stay in the meeting, you can't continue to have a conversation, right? Yeah. I have a question for you, Tavis, just in terms of practical information for our listeners. Every, I think a lot of homeowners would love to get rid of the lawn. 
And I get asked the question periodically, you know, oh, who can help me establish a meadow? And it, I think if I was, you know, uh, Joe or Jane homeowner, I, th- I think I would find it daunting. To it is daunting. Con- yeah. And again, if you talked to me about it 20 years ago, I'd say, oh, it's not daunting. I mean, you, you know where I live at my mini meadow there in the front of my yard in Philadelphia. And you know I've been to licensing and inspections three times for that little baby because someone continues to blow me in and I continue to go with all my letters from universities. And it's just, it's a landscape that's unfamiliar. And, and I mean, what I say to people now is make it simple at the start. Just make it simple. Choose three grasses. It's the same thing okay. we say to big clients. Maybe choose three grasses and, and then get that established and, and, and then maybe add some of your flowers. And, and, you know, these things go away in meadows, right? And, in the Northeast, meadows want to succeed to forests. So you can't be, you, if you want your lawn to remain as a meadow, you're going to have to bush hog it sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to have to weed whack it. And, and, and I think about my friend Dennis Burton, who was executive director at Schuylkill Center. And right. he was at Central Park before that and then up at Prospect Park and actually has a great native plant sale that's coming up. So look for it. But he talked about the restoration of the North Woods in Central Park. And they wanted to restore one of the big, big open areas. And nobody wanted a meadow. And it was a security issue. They wanted to be able to see across the grass. And so what they did was they like, it was like guerrilla meadowing. They just sort of rolled it out like 40, 20 by 40 at a time, mm-hmm. slowly over time. And so they would control the first strip. And the second. And next thing you know, the illicit activity went away. The birders all came. No one does illicit activity when people have binoculars, right? And again, no one wants to do it with grass up to their ass. And so I guess I'm saying, you know, incremental change. Like don't, if you have a big lawn, I wouldn't say, you know, unless you can really hire a management company, I wouldn't say convert the whole thing tomorrow. I just like chonk away at it. I, I mm-hmm. also think, I yeah. also think too, that the technique of using, you know, the mode edges, the clean Agreed. mode edges where your walkways are and everything behind that mode area is, looks like it's, you know, been freshly cleaned, if you will. And that whole idea makes meadow sales much easier. Agreed. It's it's the and there have been a bunch of studies done on this, right? Where they show the same two pictures of a meadow, but one of them someone has photoshopped the fence in and a bird box. And people always say the one with the fence and the bird box is cared for. And the other one they're like, oh that's a meadow, right? In fact, how I got it, I have an Audubon sign for my lawn. I've got to get it installed out there because I got an Audubon award. And, you know, maybe that'll oh, lovely. help. It'll help to keep, keep people from complaining. <laughs> but just to circle back real quickly, you know, I think what we're, all of us are kind of acknowledging and referencing is that wherever you live, there might be a special ordinance right? You, you've been cited by the city of, Phil, uh, well, I'll say the city's name, the city of Philadelphia. They thought your lawn was unkept. It's got to be worse or more challenging in the suburbs, right? Where, sure. Yeah. And those, those weed ordinances are, are kind of born honestly, right? Yeah. Back in the day, those were all there because it really complicated farmers' lives and it made it much harder to farm. 
And I think we have to we have to rethink that and challenge it and get over like we've got to get over the aesthetic, right? We we don't have the Levittown aesthetic anymore. And I think that's been sold to us. And we've talked about this a lot. It's sold to us through super green lawns, which we can't even achieve that color green because we don't we don't have a a blue green ecosystem. We have a yellow green ecosystem, right? And so that's all about uh, it's like beating people at their own game. It's the marketing strategy of native landscapes. Right, right. Oh, I think we've covered a lot of interesting topics today, lots of them. And we always ask the favorite question of what is your favorite tree or group of trees that you kind of resonate with? Is this a particular tree somewhere or a tree? Your, your affinity to a tree. Your, your spirit say, tree, Tavis. I'll just tree. say it. <laughs> well, that's a great question. I am a real sucker for the Sorsis canadensis, the red bud. I mean, how can you beat it? It's got quirky flowers that grow in weird places on its branches. It it has such a beautiful spring ephemeral. It's a host for so many of our insect friends. It's emblematic of our region here. Yeah. I grew up on Cherry Hill Court, so the wild cherry, and we had one in the yard, and it stands there today. My sister still lives there, and in fact, in my Philly yard, oh, that's why I have that cherry tree. Oh, nice. Oh, that's fun. See, there's always a tree that people gravitate towards, and I, I think that, you know, cherries are wonderful. Spring bloomers, as you're mentioning, love the cirrusis, and you're the first one to ever say cirrusis on our show. What? You are. Yeah, seriously. Seriously, yeah. seriously. seriously. <laughs> We're seriously seriously um, about this. And then for Cherry, just to nerd out, uh, Eva, is is that going to be the prunus serotina? I think it's the serotina, isn't it? The wild cherry. Serotina. serotina? Or serotina. Serotina, okay. which is serotina. the, uh, I'm saying, black cherry. It's, it's the black cherry. cherry. It's black the black cherry, cherry. yeah. yeah. The one that gets lumbered, it gets sizable. Yep. It's the Small largest of all cherries. It could be, it could get to be up to a hundred feet, which is surprising. That, and that's what it—that's what the one in the yard is. And you know, then they get a little fragile in their old age, like right. all of us, and stuff breaks off of them. So my sister, you know, does complain about it, but of course she can't cut that darn cherry tree down. I said, well, you know, Dan, if it does come down, it's not. I'll walk in the woods with you, and we can we can bring a new little one up. And she can have made yeah. something made out of the wood. That's exactly right. And, you know, that's all due to the Norwegian builder. He was sensitive to that. And I think that's why my parents liked that property, the way the house was sited, the way nature had been brought into it. And then my mom's dad had a start in landscape architecture and went on to other things. And so he really helped to celebrate native plant species way back in the 1960s and 70s in northern New Jersey. When nobody was doing it, oh, when wow. nobody was doing it, because it was hard to find. When nobody was It was doing hard to it. find native, yeah. we couldn't find native plants in a nursery. I know we had to ship, ship them in from California when we were doing our landscapes because nobody was using them. Yep. And they would walk, my mother and my grandfather would walk in the woods together and find the little plants and bring them up and nurture them. And so, so I come by this really honestly. Wow. 
I think that Norwegian builder was also an influence on you in terms of where you went with landscape architecture. So I'm starting to, yeah, he's starting to yeah. think that. I think so. I think that family was. Steiner Gunderson was his name. I still know uh, his kids because they grew up. They were all older. They were friends of my brother and sister. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think so too. I think. I think the way that and I never really thought about that. Well, I'll have to say to his daughter, Nancy, you know, I was on this show today. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was really nice meeting you, Tavis. We were just so delighted that you could be with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. This is a it's an honor and a thrill. Yeah, it was great to see you and have you and hear your great stories and uh, continued success for Viridian. You guys are doing great work. Thank you. Take care. Talk Bye. to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.